Hi, everybody. Liam here. The episode that you're about to hear was recorded live on October 9th, 2019, in front of a packed room at the Oakland Public Library. Thank you so much to everybody that came out. We had a great time. Uh, Just two quick notes before we get started. First, massive shout-outs to Katie McMurrin for recording this event, and to my favorite librarian, Dorothy Lazard, for organizing it. And second, if you want to know about other upcoming East Bay Yesterday events, you can find links to my newsletter and social media at eastbayyesterday.com. All right, here we go. Thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. So grateful to you guys for making the time. And uh, my guest tonight is Michael Healy, who was the head of BART's media and public relations, or public affairs, for 32 years. Basically from the time BART opened all the way up until 2005? That's right. I came in uh, actually in November of uh, 71, and we opened in 72, September 11th, 1972. And you also, in addition to working for BART all those years, wrote The Dramatic History of the Bay Area's Rapid Transit System, published by one of my favorite local bookmakers, Heyday Press. And uh, we're going to try to cover a lot of territory tonight, Um, so I'll try to keep this intro short, but I just want to say a couple quick words about BART before we jump into the Q&A. So for those of you who uh, either attended or listened to my last live podcast, that uh, we recorded over at Wolfman Books with Jenny O'Dell. You might remember a part from that conversation where Jenny and I were talking about how there's a value to public transportation that's more than just about getting from point A to point B. In this really individualized and alienating environment that we live in, public transit is one of the few places where we're really constantly in contact with like a lot of strangers for a prolonged amount of time, and it, it forces us to learn how to live in, uh, in a world with other people, and it gives us glimpses, sometimes really intimate or weird or surprising glimpses into the moments that we wouldn't otherwise get to experience without those interactions. And uh, you know, public transit doesn't just take us where we're going, it also takes us outside of our, our own personal bubbles. And I don't want to get too lofty here, so I'll just give you an example of the type of thing I'm talking about, and then we'll, we'll jump right into that Q&A. And uh, this story happened a few years ago, and uh, I was on a packed BART in, uh, in the city, and this tourist family gets on. I knew they were tourists because it was San Francisco and they were wearing shorts, so. <laughs> um, yeah, very, very suburban looking, let's say. There's like a dad and a mom and a little girl who's about five and a baby in a stroller, and the baby is not wearing shoes, which is a detail which <laughs> will become very important to the story in about a minute here. And uh, then on the next stop, um, an older gentleman comes on. Um, I don't want to stereotype anybody, but he looked like he was homeless. I mean, he looked like he'd been sleeping outside. And uh, surprisingly, he also had a very big dog with him, a very mangy-looking dog. It didn't appear to be a service animal. And this train is packed, so this guy is standing right next this, to this you know, very suburban-looking tourist family who looked like they'd just gotten off the plane. Yeah, so I'm kind of just standing there checking out the scene when all of a sudden the dog lifts its scraggly head and looks at the baby and starts licking the soles of the baby's feet. I kind of like sucked in my breath because I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Is this family going to like freak out that this homeless guy's dog is licking their baby's feet? And it just felt like everything got really quiet for a second. And then all of a sudden, the baby started giggling, like really cute little baby giggles. And then the baby started like laughing, like really loud. And then the family sees this and they look down and everyone who's looking at this is like, what's gonna happen? And then the family starts laughing and like everyone just like let out the sigh of relief that we didn't have to witness some like weird scene, some uncomfortable, you know, exchange. And everyone just started cracking up. And then the family looks up, sees that everyone's kind of like laughing with them slash at them. And, uh, I'd like to think that that was the uh, most connected that they felt to the, to the real Bay Area on their trip to San Francisco because, you know, that's a pretty intimate exchange to have with a, a group of strangers and that is not the type of thing that will ever happen to you when you are riding in an Uber. 
So with that, let's jump into let's jump into some questions, Mike. I'm going to kick things off with something that I'm sure is on everybody's mind right now. When you were approached by the producers of the Simpsons TV show in 1989, <laughs> and they uh, pitched this idea to you of uh, we've got this new TV show, it's a cartoon, we'd love to do a tie-in with Bart. What do you think about that? And you turned them down because uh, the, the Bart Simpson character seemed like a little bit of a juvenile delinquent. And then the Simpsons went on to become one of the most popular and beloved TV shows of all time. Uh, you got any regrets about that situation? <laughs> yeah, Liam, I think about it all the time. <laughs> and that was about 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah what happened was they uh, sent me the, the book. And it's a book that lays out all of the characters for the series and what their personalities were, uh, what kind of dialogue they would have. And clearly, Bart Simpson was an underachiever. And I looked at that and I said, yeah, well, you know, I don't think this show is going to go anywhere. Um, and, and what they wanted to do was they wanted us to put posters up inside the system saying, you know, watch for Bart. And then they put Simpson underneath. Something like that, anyway. Ultimately, I turned them down and said, I don't think we're really interested in that. And then, of course, it became a huge hit. And uh, the general manager at the time, a guy named Frank Wilson, went out and bought two uh, Bart Simpson posters to, to kind of rub it in, I think, to me. Yeah, <laughs> and he sent me one, and it actually gave me both of them. And so... Uh, our son, uh, Scott at the time, was um, a fan of The Simpsons. So I got the creator, Matt uh, Grinswick, I think it's... Uh, uh, Graining. Yeah, he, I got him to sign oh. one of the posters through a friend at Channel 2. And uh, they sent it back, and we framed it. I think he still has it, maybe. <laughs> great, great. I want to turn back the clock um, to a time even before BART, because BART was not the Bay Area's first <clears throat> rail system. Previous to BART, people got around on a network of electric streetcars called the Key System. And the Key System was dismantled, and you talk about that in your book, and I was wondering if you could <clears throat> share the reasons behind the downfall of the Key System. Well, you know, it was called the Great American Streetcar Scandal back at the time. National City Lines uh, was purported to be a, a, basically a company that was going to go around and buy up all of the systems, not just in the Bay Area, but across the country. They were buying up streetcar systems, and at the time, most of those systems were privately owned. The key system was really a privately owned system. It was created by Borax uh, Smith back in the early part of the century, the, the 20th century. And he designed it, or he built it really to serve his real estate interests. Anyway, uh, during the 40s, during the war area, it really reached its peak and uh, carried a lot of people. And then after the war, in the post-war years, it began to decline. Meanwhile, National City Lines, which purchased the controlling interest in the key system in 1940, I think 46 it was, somewhere, somewhere in there, and they began to dismantle it then. And the last trains to operate were actually across the bridge uh, in 1958. And then they took those uh, trains off. Meanwhile, in 1948, the companies that actually were behind National City Lines were uh, Standard Oil, General Motors, and Firestone Tires, and a couple of other companies. And they were charged with conspiracy to monopolize, uh, monopolize the bus business and the gas business. And uh, they were taken to court on an antitrust charge. And they were convicted and fined $5,000. <laughs> yeah, so basically a and slap on the wrist. they made millions. Rest. They made millions. Right. Well, they put the competition out of business. <laughs> and by the way, as an aside, I should mention that uh, this whole uh, conspiracy was actually depicted in Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the uh, Disney film that came out in the late 80s. And that was, that was pertaining to the L.A. system. They also bought up all the red cars, sent them down to Brazil and other South American countries. Right, and we're, we're still paying the price for that decision to rip up those rail lines. Well, uh, and particularly selling off the right-of-way Exactly, well, the right-of-ways. Right. So in your book, you describe how BART 
really happened. The development of the BART network happened at the perfect time. You say, for various reasons, it couldn't have happened any earlier or any later. And I'm wondering if you can explain why, the 60, why you feel like the 60s was the perfect time for the development uh, and implementation of this network. Well, there was a lot of history that, that went before that. Uh, BART was really, uh, the, the genesis for BART really was uh, an Army-Navy report that came out in 1947, and they, they recommended that a tube be built between San Francisco and Oakland to supplement the Bay Bridge, which already in the post-war years was beginning to uh, see traffic congestion. But their reasoning was that if something happened to the bridge, there could be a, the a system could be used to move troops back and forth between the West Bay and the East Bay through uh, a tube with, carrying high-speed trains. Anyway, moving forward, the, uh, there was a lot of studying done during the 50s, and uh, BART was then created in 1957 by the uh, state legislature uh, under the Public Utilities Act. And in 1962, there was a referendum that was to pay for the initial BART system. If that referendum had not passed in 1962, and by the way, it passed by just a hair, I mean, it was a squeaker, there would be no BART today, I'm sure of it, because the cost would have been exponential at that point. We saw double-digit inflation in the late uh, 60s. But also because Caltran was at that time building Highway 24 and also the uh, Grove Schaffner Freeway, and those were going to be key corridors for a BART system or a potential BART system. If BART were, had not been passed, if the referendum had not passed in 62, that window would have closed, and they would not have been able to use those rights of way. Just getting back to what you said about how close that vote was, I know that the Contra Costa County board member who voted in favor of BART infuriated his constituents so intensely that you write that they hung an effigy of him? I heard that. (laughs) I didn't see the effigy myself. I wasn't even here at that time. But I did hear that, in fact, uh, that happened. Well, uh, I get, can you expand on, beyond just Contra Costa County, I know that there had to be a lot of promotion of the concept of BART to basically get people on board and to get the voters to approve it. So it seems like it makes a lot of sense, right? This new rail system, it's going to decrease traffic at where you're going. So why was there such opposition? What did people need to be convinced of? Well, I think there were a lot of reasons. Uh, people felt that the key system, by, at this point, in the early days, the key system was still operating. People didn't think they would need a new system. Second of all, uh, always, you know, people always think uh, systems like BART are going to bring crime into their neighborhoods. Also, it meant uh, there was going to be a lot of condemnation going on in terms of taking up houses uh, in order to, to purchase the right-of-way. So those were all concerns that people had. But in the outlying areas of Contra Costa County, the plan did not call for service out there until many years later, or if at all. So I want to back up and um, get back to something that you mentioned a second ago, and that is this fear that's been brought up time and time again over the decades. Every time there's a BART extension somewhere, we hear this argument that BART is going to bring crime and that crime rates are going to rise around the BART stations. I assume this is a fear-mongering tactic, but I'm just wondering if you've ever had to uh, you know, look into those statistics to just disprove um, that argument that, that comes up over and over. Yeah, well, uh, in working on the airport extension project, and I was very much involved in that. I even, even attended a few community meetings down in San Mateo County where there were mostly opposition. It was mostly people speaking in opposition to BART coming down there. And they would say, well, uh, BART's going to bring crime. BART's going to bring all this development that we may not want. And uh, we have Caltrain, uh, which is serving uh, the corridor anyway. And they were afraid. There was a lot of fear that BART coming down there would actually mean the end of Caltrain service. You never had to uh, deal with any like crime no, spikes no. once a BART station no, opened. Or no, that's, yeah, that right. was, uh, that's, again, you're right, that's really fear mongering, and we've seen a lot of that uh, over the years. Yeah. And then uh, I know that BART originally was planned to go to six different counties instead of the three that it started in. I was wondering if you could talk about why the Marin BART never happened. Cause I know that well, people actually, see that as a huge it actually was five counties. Oh, the, okay. uh, uh, Santa Clara County 
was originally going to be in the district, but they they bowed out even before the legislature voted on it. So it became five counties, San Mateo, Marin, Contra Costa, uh, San Francisco, and Alameda. First of all, San Mateo County dropped out first. And what happened there was a local developer named Bohannon who was building shopping centers down in San Mateo County. Uh, and then he said this admittedly years later, that he lobbied the... San Mateo County Board of Supervisors, very hard to take BART out of the referendum and, and not be a part of the district. And his reasoning was that people down in San Mateo County would simply get on BART and come up and shop in San Francisco rather than shop at the shopping centers that he was building at the time. So San Mateo County is out. We're now down to four counties. The plan, the original plan, called for BART to go across the second deck of the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge District, which was then called the Redwood Empire, they had a study done and they said, no, the bridge was not structurally sound enough to carry trains across a second deck. Those Bechtel, views would have been amazing, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Bechtel, part of the consortium of engineers that were working on the system, did their own study and they said, yes, they thought it was structurally sound to carry lightweight trains because the bar trains were going to be aluminum-struded shells Uh, which would make them much lighter than normal trains or the regular trains. Um, So the bridge district uh, said you can't come across the bridge, and it was their corridor and it was their decision. The only other option would have been to build a transbay tube from probably Montgomery Street across the Sausalito and and then build the system up to Nevada, which was what the original plan called for. But the cost of that would have been enormous, and, and the difference between going across the bridge and building another tube would have had to have been borne by Marin County. At that time, Marin County had a very sparse population in terms of what well, was also mostly a bedroom community, very little, if any, industrial tax base. On top of that, some of the environmentalists were very much against BART coming in, saying it's going to bring development, it's going to bring, again, possibly crime. And, of course, the growth came anyway. And so they have, to, to some degree, suffered for that because of the traffic that's grown up uh, over the years. One thing that was fascinating to me reading your book is how, you know, there's years and years of engineering and planning and architecture that went into devising these BART routes. But then when somebody powerful enough put their foot down and decided to say, actually, you're going to have to do it my way or the highway, all those plans could get tossed out the window. And I'm thinking specifically about Oakland's former mayor, uh, John (laughs) Houlihan. So I'm wondering if you can explain to people why the route between West Oakland and 12th Street had to be modified and what the long-term impact of uh, the mayor's demand has had on us uh, Oakland citizens. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, um, there was a big hardware store, family-owned hardware store. It actually was opened in 1937 in Oakland called Simon's Hardware. It was located on the corner of Broadway and 8th Street. And the plan called for uh, the curve of the, of the line going into Oakland and going up to West Oakland. And this was going to be called the, the Y, basically. And so it, went, it would have meant raising that, that store. And, and the store would have had to move to another location. John Houlihan was a very close friend of the Simon family. And he said to Bart, we're not going to allow you to come into Oakland at all if you want to raise that building. And so he put a lot of pressure on Bart. And finally, Bart, Bart versus one hardware store. That's right. Basically. One hardware <laughs> store. And, uh, you know, it was an old established hardware store. And so Bart agreed, and they moved the line by a block to ninth rather than eighth. But what it did was it created a much uh, strong, much uh, harder curve going into Oakland, going up to West Oakland. And so when trains come through there, you can hear the flanges running against the, the rail, the side of the that rail. That wonderful screeching the wheel, noise the wheel that flanges, you probably all right. Now, I believe the new design of the And it has car- to go slower as well, right? Well, it had to go down back to, I think, down to 25 miles an hour yeah, yeah. at tops going through there. But I believe the new cars, with the new design of the wheels, I think is going to diminish that the screeling sound a lot, I believe. Well, there's a little bit of a happy ending to that story because not long after that, Houlihan was sent to prison for two years for embezzlement. Another Oakland mayor locked up for uh, corruption. Although uh, 
The unfortunate coda to him going to prison is that he was pardoned by Governor Reagan. Good old Ronnie uh, let his buddy out of you. Let, you let, must. Let have, you must. Early. Oh, Liam, you must have researched that. Huh? <laughs> well, it's all here. And by the way, for the podcast audience, something I just noticed is that I'm actually uh, wearing Bart colors right now. I've got the blue and gray on. So. Oh yeah. Well, kind it's of. Kind of, uh, kind of a little a dark blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as we're in Oakland, I want to. I want to stick on our home turf for a second. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the decision to locate the various BART stations was approached, and then if you could expand on that to describe maybe like what are the various <clears throat> impacts that BART coming to those different neighborhoods had on Oakland, like Rockridge versus Fruitvale versus West Oakland, etc. With great difficulty. Mm. <laughs> uh, there was probably a fight all the way. Well, I mean, the downtown stations were natural because they were serving the, the, the strongest part of the employment centers, the urban centers, in Oakland and in San Francisco. In the uh, outlying areas or in the suburban areas, it was a little more difficult because you had to, you wanted, we wanted, Bart wanted to serve the basically uh, uh, already established communities that were there. And so there had to be a lot of negotiation going on to place the stations where they were eventually placed. And then, of course, in the case of Berkeley, that was a whole other story. Yeah, you know, I, I'd love to talk about that because for people who don't know, um, the city of Berkeley passed a resolution in 1960 to basically demand that BART would go underground through Berkeley instead of on a raised platform. Uh, the mayor at the time, Wallace Johnson, argued that an elevated platform along Grove Street, which was later renamed Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue uh, would create a barrier basically between the white community and the black community, among other uh, issues. And so a lot of people got very motivated to uh, protest against BART at the time. There was a documentary recently about a woman, Mabel Howard, who was instrumental in that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of how that confrontation between, you know, this, this people's movement and BART was resolved and sort of what BART learn from that confrontation moving forward about how to negotiate with neighborhood organizations? Well, Wally Johnson was the mayor of Berkeley at the time, and uh, he owned a scaffolding company. He also was kind of an inventor, so he was actually quite an interesting guy. He decided that uh, BART, uh, an aerial system going through Berkeley, was going to be a social division between the city, uh, dividing the city. So what he did was he wanted to demonstrate what it would look like. So he put scaffolding up in the neighborhoods uh, at about the right height, at about the height of a system, you know, the BART system might be, to show people what that would look like. And, of course, people were outraged at the whole idea. Anyway, there were a lot of hearings. And some of the BART, I don't know who these people, which BART engineers, or there may have been vectoral engineers that made presentations saying, well, you know, you want to go aerial, it's going to cost another $25 million just to do that over and, over and above what was already uh, budgeted for uh, the aerial system. This fight went on for about three, three and a half years. And in, in fact, in, in the, I think it was uh, around the mid-60s, mid to late 60s, they finally resolved it when uh, the city of Berkeley uh, decided that what they would do is hold their own bond referendum within the city to help pay for uh, the system. And by the way, the numbers finally came out at around $12.5 million. And that was the difference between what it would have cost to do the aerial. And so there was more, it was more of a cost, but there was $12.5 million, million from the city of Berkeley to pay for it. And so that resolved the issue, and they decided to then go ahead and do the, do the subway system. So, uh, you know, we're here in the Bay Area. I think earthquakes are always on everyone's mind. And uh, I know, I, I don't know if I can speak for everyone, but I used to worry more about being in the Transbay tube during an earthquake, uh, just because you're underwater. It's a little claustrophobic sometimes. But it survived with flying colors in the in the 89 Loma Prieta quake uh, people in the tube didn't even feel the ground shaking but you do mention in the book that the tunnel that uh, Bart takes between Rockridge and the Arinda station goes right across the Hayward Fault and so I'm wondering if that's something <laughs> that people should be concerned about <laughs> no <laughs> Uh, the estimates are that if there were a major earthquake, that there might be some displacement 
but that the tunnel is, has been built to be very solid in that respect. But there might be some track displacement uh, of a train going through. The Transbay tube is flexible at both ends, and <coughs> so that it was designed, it was, there, there was almost six years of seismic study before the Transbay tube was actually designed. And uh, <coughs> it has flexible joints at each end, which do move, and the, the tube can you know, move with that. So that's one of the major benefits of the tube itself in terms of safety. Okay, gotcha. So we don't need to be worried about being on BART if there's ever a big one. Well, you know, they interviewed people coming off the trains after the Loma Prieta, and they didn't feel a thing. They didn't know there was an earthquake. Wow. (laughs) One of the things that you talk about in your book is is about how the early years of BART were really characterized by this revolving door of crises. There was all kinds of technical problems. You wrote that for a while, like half of Bart's cars could be out of commission on any given day. There were labor issues. There was a month-long strike that shut down Bart before Bart had even been open for a year. And things got so bad that in 1974, you write that the Bart board gave serious consideration to closing down and declaring bankruptcy. So I'm just wondering if you were ever worried that BART might actually fail and not, you know, um, continue? And what was the hardest part of your job during those years when it's like technical things, labor issues, you know, bankruptcy? It seems like it was a lot of challenges. What, me worry? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it, it was a daily barrage. There's no question about it. Of course, in the early days, we had the technical issues. We had a, uh, a blue, a blue ribbon panel uh, that was conducted by uh, Alfred Alquist up in Sacramento. And this is because a bar train went off the end of the track at Fremont. And so that's the Fremont sort of, Flyer. The Fremont Flyer. And that was really a catalyst for a whole a slew of investigations. And ultimately, Bill Stokes, who was the general manager, who really, who really carried BART through the construction years, resigned in 1974. And besides all the technical and, and anyway. labor issues, I was going to um, ask about, there was quite a few corruption scandals as well. I was surprised <laughs> to read about just how many FBI sting operations uh, ended up entrapping, maybe not entrapping, but uh, catching, let's say, BART, BART officials in the act of uh, malfeasance, kickback schemes, and things of that nature. <laughs> well, um, one day I got a call from uh, the acting general manager, a guy named Dick Demko, so I go up to meet him, and I said, what's going on? And he's got uh, also the HR, uh, head of HR, a guy named Larry Williams there. So the three of us are sitting in his office, and he said, well, I just got a call from the FBI, and they asked if we could come out and meet them at their office in Concord. And it was way off the beaten track. So he we said, well, well, all right. So we get in the car, we drive out to the FBI headquarters out there, local headquarters, and we go into this building, and it's up on the fourth floor, and we go up there, and there's this door, and it's just a number on the door. There's no marking at all. I mean, it's almost like they they don't want anybody to know they're there, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Knock on the door. Somebody kind of opens it a crack, and we say who we are. Oh, yeah, come on in. They bring us in. Sit us down. Offer us some coffee. And uh, the head of the office, a guy named Drew Eppy, I don't mind saying his name, comes out. He says, well, uh, we brought you here because we want to tell you that at this very moment, he's looking at his watch, we are now raiding your offices in <laughs> Oakland, and we are arresting three uh, managers out there, which they did. And uh, turned out, they, as usual it turned in out they, had a, they had had a long-running sting operation on these guys, who apparently were getting demanding money under the table from small contractors to give them work at BART. That's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And one of the contractors blew the whistle on them, went to the FBI and said, how come I have to pay money to these guys in order to get work at BART? And it was very unfortunate, but uh, anyway. So Wasn't they, there another <laughs> FBI sting story in your book where uh, someone accused a BART official of embezzling them, and then when the BART got official got called out they were like oh that guy tried to embezzle me before and they were basically accusing each other of a kickback scheme it was like a richmond uh council member or something like that i don't remember that one yeah. <laughs> we've had others well, there's quite a few <clears throat> we we <laughs> <laughs> we uh well then uh in the, the early 90s we had a case where the guy that ran the cash building and the guy that ran the uh, treasury 
both got both were uh, there was another sting operation there and at BART um, you have these fare machines and they have hoppers in them and the hoppers collect the the bills and when they get filled the bills kind of spill over onto the floor and they don't get counted so when they made the collection around the various stations, they put all the money in one bag that uh, was on the floor and not counted, and the other money in another bag that was counted. That money would then go directly into the cash handling process and then counted. The other money would go to the manager, who would then determine uh, the count himself and then give it to the people in the and you know, and I'm not sure why that was the process. I've, I've never figured that out. They were just cleaning out. up the spilled money, right? They're, that so, story reminds me so, of the uh, the FBI, or I'm sorry, the San Francisco Police Crime Lab analyst who uh, got busted for stealing evidence, and she said the only cocaine she stole and sniffed <laughs> was the stuff that spilled on the table. Well, <laughs> well, well. Anyway, his uh, the the manager of that cash building secretary secretly sent a memo out to BART police saying that something was going on. So they called the FBI, and in the middle of the night, they came in and installed a camera over his desk. So when all of this cash would come into him on his desk, he, he would, you know, it was sort of like he'd open his briefcase. He's, well, let's see, one for BART, three for me. One for BART, three for me. And then four for me. Anyway. He he uh, he was ultimately arrested and convicted. He was and tried, <laughs> but anyway, that was another another little scandal. Um, well, I know you dealt with a lot of these kind of fairly run of the mill corruption type scandals. You know, none of these schemes are really that innovative. But you also dealt with some pretty bizarre controversies, and uh, the one I'm thinking about specifically is regarding a photo of a Bart employee <laughs> that ran in the uh, the Bart employees. Uh, What's the word? Like internal uh, magazine was called the Inside Track. We, yeah, my department, we put out a we put out a newsletter to the employees once a month called Inside Track. Anyway, um, one of the managers who worked for me came to me and, he, and said, Mike, he said, I'm thinking about uh, an issue where we would invite all of the employees to send in their pictures of when they were in the service. And uh, write a story around each it one of them. It was like a Veterans Day issue like or something. Like a Veterans like Day yeah. issue, exactly. I said, that yeah, sounds great. Sounds like a good idea. So he put a memo out, and people started sending in their pictures. We got a picture from their general counsel. Uh, he was a private, apparently, in the Army uh, during, I think, the Korean War. Uh, Maybe in the First World or Second World War. I'm not sure. So we kept getting these pictures in, and finally one picture comes in from the head of our budget department, a woman named Hedy Morant. And it's a picture of Hedy in her Luftwaffe uniform, standing under, uh, standing under a, 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 a Messerschmitt, or not a Messerschmitt, but a, 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 a Stuka, well, I can't remember where those planes were. Huh? Yeah. Something with the swastika on well, it. Well, swastika on it, yeah, yeah. So there she is standing under the wing in her, proudly in her uniform. And so Cy went ahead, the guy that I'm talking about, went ahead and published it along with all the others. <laughs> and there was a kid in, the, in her department who hated her to begin with because he thought, he thought she was kind of a Nazi anyway. <laughs> And so he reported her to the Anti-Defamation League, and it became, but this never became a news story, by the way. It was an internal story. And, and Hetty felt terrible. She said, look, she came to me, and almost in tears, and she had Mike, she said, look, I know this has caused some controversy, and I was conscripted into the Army. I was never in the party. My father was actually in a concentration camp. And I just said, look, don't worry about it. We're going to be okay. And we were. Eventually, it went away. <laughs> so I know that uh, part of your job entailed giving the celebrities that were visiting BART the, uh, the tour. And you have come in contact with everyone from Prince Charles to John Madden uh, in that capacity. So I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, if you've got any good stories about interesting celebrity encounters, bringing the, the big wigs around on BART. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, Jerry Brown, I escorted Jerry Brown. Uh, uh, the then general manager, Frank Herringer, and I escorted him from Daly City to Barcadero. And one of the things 
that happened then was, you know, there was always a lot of controversy over BART going down to the San Francisco airport because it was in San Mateo County and they dropped out and there was a lot of resentment about the fact that they dropped out. And so uh, there was a bill uh, that had been passed that prevented BART from going down to San Mateo County without meeting its commitments in the East Bay first, right. like going out to Pittsburgh Antioch, going out to uh, Dublin Pleasanton. So we get on the train at Embarcadero, and we're starting to ride, and we show Jerry the cab, and it's just the three of us standing there plus the train operator. And he turns to us, and he said, well, when are you guys going to go to the San Francisco airport? And so Frank Carringer looked at him. He said, well, you just signed a bill that said we can't go. <laughs> he looked at us and says, what? <laughs> and he said, was that a bad bill? <laughs> anyway, years later, we overcame that, but that bill, and we made, you know, there was a lot of uh, negotiations going on, but we got over the bill, and uh, we were able to go uh, both to San Mateo. But San Mateo actually paid in to help us pay for the East Bay extension, so that's how we did it. Yeah. Well, another thing that could have been used to pay for, you know, all these expansions is uh, having a bar car in BART. And I know that there was a proposal about that at one point that received quite a bit of enthusiastic support. So why no, why no bar car on BART? Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? You know, back in, back in the late, back around the mid-80s, I think it was, uh, one of the directors, Will Ussery. Well, first of all, you know, the board deals with a lot of major contracts, you know, million-dollar contracts. And on that particular day, they approved, I think, a $10 million contract for something and another contract for something. And then in the midst of all that, uh, Director Ussery said, you know what, why don't we have a bar car on BART? And, yeah, yeah. and somebody else said, yeah, you could, you could get two martinis down between uh, Daly City and Concord at least. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so anyway... What do you think the headlines were in all the papers? Bart to propose, Dart to consider Bart car or Bar car, not the contracts, not the billion dollar contracts, but the Bar car. That became that was a sex that was a lot sexier than contracts. Anyway, of course it never happened, but uh. unfortunately. <laughs> so if you're listening, Bart board members, well, I don't know. With think these about packed, it. Think with about these it. packed trains, I think it would be pretty difficult to even get a train, <laughs> get a drink down without spilling it. True. Um, so you, you've just got so many um, quirky little stories packed into your book, and one of the uh, things that you mentioned is how there was somebody running a brothel out of the BART lockers <laughs> in the, I think it was the Ashby station. And this is kind of a logistical question. How big were those lockers? Because... Uh, big enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm gonna, and the uh, rent was cheap, by the yeah. way, $30 a year. Can't beat the rent. Wow, yeah. So uh, I'm going to open it up to listener or the uh, audience Q&A in a couple minutes. But first, I want to ask a couple questions that uh, came through my listeners on social media. I asked people on Twitter if they had any questions for you. And here's a couple of the things that people were wondering about. This first question comes from another local journalist, great guy by the name of Pendarvis Harshaw. I think he was asking about this because of the recent controversies around pan or um, performing performers on BART or in BART stations. I think he's just wondering, like, what's the history of that? Like, how has BART historically dealt with people busking and things on uh, on BART and BART stations? That's easy. BART lost a lot. Uh, BART lost a lawsuit on that matter. On that very matter. Way back in, I think, the 80s, maybe, there was a violinist who used to play uh, inside the station, and he was arrested, uh, cited, and then he was arrested and thrown out of the station a couple times. And he felt that the free area of the stations was uh, basically public property. And so um, we decided that, well, anyway, lost the lawsuit, he, and he was back. And we had, a, we, you know, we've always had musicians on the system, and uh, we've had people actually kicking off their careers on the system. We had one guy who was a puppeteer, and he was, you know, he'd have his puppet with him wherever he went, and he'd entertain people on the train, and, you know, and hoping to get discovered, I think. Uh, so what Bart started to do was offer permits to, so BART could control the space, but they couldn't control whether or not people could come on and 
entertain, you know, in the free areas. Yeah. This next question is so bizarre, and I just love it. Uh, it comes from... I hope it's not too bizarre. No, it's pretty bizarre. So <laughs> here's, here's the question. I'm just going to read it verbatim as it came to me through Twitter. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Elliot Smith wrote, quote, Apparently there was a racket at one point where gangs would slash seats with knives <laughs> so they'd have to be reupholstered, generating overtime pay for BART workers and extra orders for materials suppliers. Specific patterns would be cut in so they'd knew, know who to pay for the favor. Is that true? <laughs> I don't deny it. Is that is that <laughs> is that in my book? I don't remember. No, that's I'm, not in the book. I did, oh yeah. God, how did I forget that one? So that really happened. What it was? It was a it was a company out in Contra Costa County. It was contracted. Uh, the Bart contracted with to uh, repair the seat cushions from the Bart trains. And so uh, we noticed that uh, there was a spike in the vandalism on the, of the cushions, and it was kind of creeping up. And over several-month period, uh, it was really sky high, and they were, there were these slashes in the seats. And then we'd send the seats out to this guy, and they'd repair them. Well, a guy got arrested. Some guy got arrested on a dope charge uh, for the, by the Concord police. And so uh, he tried to make a deal. He said, I'll tell you what, there's this little scam going on over here that I know about because I was one of the guys uh, that they hired. And they'd pay us like $2 a slash or $3 a slash, something like that. And um, he told them where the company was. It was run by this guy and his son. Uh, and the guy was well-known in Contra Costa County. I don't remember his name, but he was very well-respected and known. And, and knew all the judges, too. So... We uh, they ran a sting operation on this guy. Bart police did, and with the help of I think Concord police or or some police force out in Contra Costa County. Anyway, uh, they got the goods on the guy. They arrested him, and uh, uh, the the slashes of the seat stopped pretty abruptly. <laughs> he went to court. He was tried, and. He pleaded insanity. <laughs> that is a pretty insane I, I scheme. You, I kid you not. He pleaded insanity. Uh, I don't know what happened after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I don't think I can come up with any questions uh, more crazy than that one. So let's open it up to the audience now. And if, if you guys have questions, please line up at the microphone. And uh, let's see what you got. I see Rebecca Saltzman here. By the way, Rebecca is a member of the BART board. <laughs> so first, thank you for doing this. My Big pleasure. fan of the podcast yeah. and of the book. Um, I wanted to know, in the past couple of years, some images have resurfaced of drawings of potential apartment developments at some BART stations like Rockridge and North Berkeley. And of course, now on the BART board, we're planning lots of transit-oriented development and building it. Um, but can you talk about decades ago when this was discussed and why it didn't happen and just what you can tell us about that time? Well, I'm not sure of the specifics, but there were a lot of uh, developers who wanted to build around BART stations, but for one reason or another, uh, either due to local zoning issues or or even money issues, uh, it didn't happen. You know, originally BART was designed to be a planning tool for development around the Bay Area. And there was some spattering, smattering of development in the early days, but not a lot. Uh, and in fact, in the 70s, when they came out with what they called the BART Impact Report, in the early 70s, and of course, BART had just really opened and hadn't really uh, begun running uh, off that often yet. I mean, it had been, you know, had been uh, operating that often yet. They criticized BART in a way because they hadn't uh, attracted the development that it was supposed to have attracted. But if you look at the corridor, uh, the Market Street corridor, from let's say 1964 to 1972, what a difference! I mean. Billions of dollars poured into construction, uh, construction uh, of uh, buildings in the in the Market 
street corridor during that period. So there was a major development there and a major change there. But out in the suburban areas, it was a little different. Anyway, today now we are seeing more development. We're seeing it at the, certainly at the MacArthur Station with that huge building there. And uh, there was development out, uh, I think, along the, uh, uh, the Walnut Creek area there. So uh, we're, as they say, we're beginning to see now you know, the d- development that is really beginning to happen around BART. But it's taken a long time. Hi. Um, I think when I was reading the book, one of the most depressing parts was the ease with which Santa Clara uh, County and San Mateo County were able to drop out, you know, these entire areas just sort of just, you know, seeming like maybe just city council members were able to just like, you know, end this whole system for such a large area. Uh, my question is, in the 70s, did you still or did BART still have hope that they'd be able to sort of increase the size of the BART district or were you pretty much resigned to just dealing with the three-county district? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. BART uh, general manager Bill Stokes at the time made a statement, which I've always loved, which he said, you know, I don't think we'll ever stop building in my lifetime. And I believe that he always believed that those extensions ultimately would take place. But the politics at the time were going to hamper it. At least it's going to, we're going to delay it for a long time because a lot of people were you know, unhappy with the fact that San Mateo dropped out. Santa Clara was never really a part of the district anyway. So, but there was a lot of interest down there in becoming a part of BART, and that began to emerge back in the, certainly in the late 80s and early 90s. And, of course, now we're seeing the San Jose extension, uh, which is pretty much built and should open, uh, well, I don't know when, maybe early next year sometime. I'm not sure. That's been delayed, and I'm not sure what's going on there. But uh, I think some technical issues probably are delaying it. That seems to be a recurring theme with rail-oriented projects in uh, the California and the Bay Area in general. I, you know, the central subway has been pushed back to, I think, 2021 now um the high-speed rail might never happen let me tell you one quick thing the central subway which has taken about nine years i think to To do two miles of track to do two miles of track and at a cost of about what four billion for something like that it's getting more more every day almost three times amount of the amount of the whole bart system the, the original 75 mile bart system uh, which was actually built in less time, seven years. I mean, so I, go figure. And for anyone who doesn't know where the central subway is going, it's the uh, end of the Caltran or um, Caltrain line at yeah. King Street up to up, like North Beach, right? Up to North Beach, through yeah. Chinatown. It was meant to serve Chinatown up through North Beach, yes. That's correct. Yeah, so... Um. Yes. Hi, thanks for doing this. Big fan. Uh, I got a question about there's a lot of discourse around fare evasion right now. So, uh, you know, your institutional institutional knowledge. Uh, what were people saying about fare evasion back in the day? How are they saying it? You know, what are your thoughts? We don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fare evasion has always been uh, an issue at BART. Uh, it just seems to be, you know, there seems to be more of it today. And I'm not sure why, except that, of course, the ridership has gone up, and BART has become a lot more important to the Bay Area, you know, as the years go on. But I don't know what the answer to that is. Of course, there, you know, there are a lot of people just don't have money. Make BART free. Yeah. (laughs) Make BART free. Do an honor system. And uh, those those don't always work too well. Um, But as to why, it's awfully hard to tell. But it is happening. There's no question about that. And I know they are now uh, taking steps to try to uh, minimize it or, or stop it with uh, these new fare gates, uh, new fare gate design that they're looking at. So yeah, Like a Muni-style design, yeah, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Hi. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the development of West Oakland BART and sort of the his, the history of that, of like the, there was like a historic black um, jazz district there. And I was wondering if there was any kind of discussion around that or like how they came to that decision of um, sort of paving through that. I'm not sure you mean the, well, the, <clears throat> uh, the Seventh Street Corridor mm-hmm. you're yeah, talking about, right? Yeah, the Seventh Street Corridor. Um, well, there's always been, you know, it's always been thought that development would take place around the West Oakland Station, and there's still, I think, property that has not been really utilized for that purpose. 
that was all part of the original, I think the original planning uh, that this would happen. And you know, West Oakland has really emerged as a, and, and to some degree gentrified, uh, but um, I can't, that, you, you, know, you can't lay that at the BART steps, but uh, development around BART is important. I think it's important for the community because it, hopefully it would lessen the use of, uh, of automobiles in those corridors and uh, provide transportation at the doorstep, in a sense. Yeah, and uh, I can speak to that question a little bit too um, regarding the uh, devastation of a black neighborhood in West Oakland and its historic uh, business district and entertainment district along 7th Street. There was a lot of factors that were involved in basically turning that neighborhood into rubble. There was the uh, development of the giant post office or the postal services sorting building there, um, the 880 freeway as well, and um, when the Cypress structure was built, um, kind of coming off 7th Street, which is now Mandela Parkway, and uh, also Oakland's Redevelopment Agency, which I believe we're going to have a talk about coming up pretty soon, right? Yeah. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, Mariah Yulinskis is going to be talking all about the city of Oakland's role in destroying that neighborhood. Um, not completely, of course, because many people survived, made it through, not all the houses were um, pulverized, but there are striking images from that era of the, the contractor who the city hired to do some of the demolitions of those old Victorians along 7th Street. The lowest bid was a guy who didn't have a bulldozer. He literally had a decommissioned Sherman tank from the US military. So those photos that you can find upstairs in the history room of a tank smashing into these houses and you know destroying <laughs> this neighborhood. And there is also footage that you can find online of the residents of that neighborhood reacting to what's happening. And uh, they were not happy about it. They tried to resist it, but the city basically um, bulldozed them the same way that it bulldozed uh, their neighborhood. Any other questions? Thank you for your talk. Um, I'm curious what you see as the biggest challenges facing BART today, and if you were in charge, how you would address them. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I would start by building another transmade tube to take the pressure off the current tube, uh, rather than another bridge, which would only bring more traffic into the city. So that would certainly be one thing. And then, of course, BART is in the process right now of a new of uh, of uh, the design of a new train control system, and I think that's going to help immensely because right now BART can run 24 hour 24 trains an hour through the Transbay tube, and this will bring it up to around 30 trains an hour, and that will make a big difference in terms of capacity. Uh, and as the new cars come in, that's you know that that's going to be very helpful. So. Hope that answers the question. That's what I would do. <laughs> My question is, have you ridden a new bot car, and yes. did you like it? I love it. They're really great. They're, they're beautifully designed, and you know, they've had a few issues with them, but they're, they're, they're getting those issues you know, resolved. So yeah, I think they're great. I think they're going to be wonderful. Yeah, I think not having carpet in BART is a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I need to expand on that. I think anyone who's ever ridden BART late at night knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, all right, everyone, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you for coming out and also especially to the people who are supporting uh, East Bay yesterday through Patreon. Uh, you guys make my ability to do free events like this and put out the podcast possible. So, so grateful uh, to all the supporters and um, everyone who's listening and sharing the word. We're hopefully going to be doing, or I'll hopefully be doing more events again sometime soon. So if you haven't signed up for the East Bay Yesterday newsletter, you can find it on the website. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming out. And thanks to Dorothy for putting together History Month for the Open Library. They'll do it. Good night.